Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Over 180,000 titles to choose from, from your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash BGM podcast for your free audiobook. Thank you for tuning in to episode 54 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. The name of this episode is Black Snobbery, Folk Tales, and Tuskegee Airs. Our first segment is with Danielle Belton. Danielle Belton is the creator of The Black Snob, a popular blog that's been around for many years, and she's an associate editor over at The Root. We talk about all kinds of things, including her stint on Don't Sleep with T.J. Holmes as the show's head writer, and also her advocacy work in the mental illness community. The next segment is Folk Tales. Okay, so this is a little bit different. I decided to narrate one of my favorite stories of all time in this book that was published back in 1985 by Virginia Hamilton called The People Could Fly. In the story, it's called The Peculiar Such Thing. It's actually based off a series of folk tales told back in the 19th century. Our final segment is with Marcus Williams and Joelle Monique. Joelle Monique interviews comic writer and artist Marcus Williams, who has a new Kickstarter that is ready and waiting for your funds called Tuskegee Airs. He talks about his comic, he talks about anime, and his work as an independent creator. He's also featured on our Comic Creators You Should Know series on BlackGirlNerds.com. So when you get an opportunity after listening to this interview, check out some of his artwork on the website. So sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 54. Born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, on a healthy diet of news programming, pop culture, black history, and snark, Danielle Belton, daughter of loving regular folk and wife of none, examines the irrelevant side of American life. With two million readers in less than two years, Belton is best known as the editor and writer of the pop culture meets politics blog, The Black Snob. Currently, Belton is an associate editor at The Root. Previously, she was the editor-at-large for Clutch Magazine Online, and in 2012 was the head writer for the late-night TV show, Don't Sleep, hosted by T.J. Holmes on BET. 
BlackSnob.com has a readership spanning political junkies, journalists, fellow bloggers, political pundits, authors, academics, legislators, and political strategists. The Black Snob has earned critical acclaim appearing in Time Magazine, The New York Times, The Observer in the UK, The Daily Beast, Essence Magazine, The Associated Press, The American Prospect, as well as appearing on CNN, MSNBC, NPR, PBS, Good Morning America, HLN, ABC's Nightline, Al Jazeera English, CCTV, and Russia Today. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Thank you for tuning in. This is a great segment that we have ahead of you here. I am so thrilled to have Danielle Belton. She is the creator of this site that I have been a fan of for many, many years, long going, called The Black Snob, also associate editor over at The Root. She's here to sit down and talk to us about all of her many, many accomplishments. Thank you, Danielle, first of all, for coming on and chatting with us here at the Black Girl Nerds podcast. No, it's no problem. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy you guys' work. So Black, the Black Snob, it, it really was one of the first blogs that I had ever seen on the interwebs. I mean, this was way before blogging was a thing yeah. um, that I had noticed the Black Snob. And I loved your snark. So tell us about when this blog had came about and how did you manage to garner such an impressive number? Two million viewers within a span of two years after publishing it. Well, it's an, it's an interesting story. It actually starts uh, in 2004 because that's actually how long I've been blogging. I, I started blogging for my old newspaper, the Bakersfield Californian in 2004 with entertainment blog. Um, it was on Blogspot, and uh, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. I, I would write about this local entertainment and things I thought were interesting. And uh, after I left the newspaper industry in 2007, I realized I really missed uh, my old, old blog. I missed my old newspaper column. And I thought, you know what? I'll just recreate it online. So in the fall of 2007, I started The Black Snob. And originally, like, the only people who read it were, like, my sisters and my cat. Like, I don't nobody read it. And... <laughs> It's just, I, I didn't expect anyone really to read it. But then in 2008, in January, when uh, President Obama, who's then Senator Obama, went Iowa, I felt like I really want to write something. I wish I was with a newspaper. I want to write something. And I was like, oh, crap, I have a blog. I'll just, I'll just write my response to Obama win, winning Iowa on my blog. And so I wrote the column there, and things just started just really quickly to take off. I started updating a campaign. Um, I started writing about really early on about Michelle Obama and her clothes and who the the stylists that she works with were. And I started, I just did all these like little weird things. Like um, I started this segment where I pretended to fake stalk uh, CNN. At the time he was with CNN, he's with ABC now, TJ Holmes. I had a whole feature called Google Stalking TJ Holmes where um, I realized he didn't have a web page, but he had a huge fan following of women on the internet. And I was like, you know, hey, I could probably get those women to read my blogs. They probably would like my blog a lot if I could just get them to come. How so I'll just write about TJ Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of my original content was all like a big plot on how to get people to read the blog. And at the time, like in 2008, it's, it's funny. Um... 
even though there were black people online, there wasn't a lot of black content online. Mm-hmm. So like if you wanted to know more about TJ Holmes or just news people that you saw that were black on television, a lot of them didn't have web pages. And so I would just write about them on my blog and it just became a place where you just went to to find out about these individuals. And then I did the Michelle Obama fashion retrospective, which I was one of the first people to really write about her clothes and put tons of pictures of her clothes up. And so I got a lot of attention off of that for like the longest time in 2008. If you Google Michelle Obama fashion, you know, my website was like one of the first sites to actually pop up before everybody started writing about it and then it didn't matter anymore. Like it got pushed down to the, it's nowhere now. But (laughs) in February, 2008, I was huge. So, you know, so much so that, um, AP and ABC and all these other news organizations reached out to me and interviewed me to talk about Michelle Obama's clothes. Uh, another thing that I did to kind of get readers, I wrote a lot about black Republicans, mm. uh, specifically about how they felt about President Obama, about their background, their thoughts on different things. Because like, um, even though I uh, don't always agree with black Republicans, I find them fascinating. And so I felt that other people would find it interesting too and wanted to know more about them, like how they came to their conclusions or why they think that the way that they think or just who these people are. You know, you're seeing them on TV, you're reading about them. You know, what are their actual thoughts on things? Like what's a way to break it down? So I did that series. Um, so yeah, I did a bunch of, like, I, I started a parody blog that was called The Secret Council of American Negroes. And that was where like I just went buck wild and like made up all these intricate plots about like what's going on really in the background. Like it was like, it was conspiracy brother time, you know, with that particular blog. And um, that was a lot of fun. So uh, 2008 um, was a year where I was just churning out tons of content. I think I updated the blog like six times a day. Uh, I did that for like three years straight. Wow. Like, updated today like a crazy person. Where did you uh, find the time to do that? Because, that, I mean, that's a lot of, of churning yeah. six times a day. Where did you find the time to carve that out, uh, s- updating six oh, times? I would, I would get up, like, at five in the morning and start blogging. Wow. That's and a I would try to get as many posts out as I could before noon, and I would schedule them then throughout the day. And then I would go do my crappy job at the time, um, I went through a brief stint as a sweater folder at Macy's. Like my story is a story. You come back from anything. Like I went from being a newspaper reporter to like working at Macy's for a little while when I was unemployed. And <laughs> <laughs> I kept this blog going. I was like, I'm going to come back. I'm going to make a comeback. I'm not going to, you're not going to find me like working at Macy's forever. Like I'm, I'm going to get back where I need to be. So I worked on the blog while I was doing that job. I had so many different jobs. Like it's, it's not even funny at this point. Uh, I think around the same time, I like I worked for a PR firm doing contract work while I was working on the blog. Um, I freelanced while I was working on the blog. But the blog was like, I knew that I always felt really positive about my writing style. I felt like if I could just break out of writing for these small town newspapers, if I could just get a wider audience and get people to see it, mm-hmm. you know, I felt like I could really build a career, which I hadn't really been able to do particularly well up until I did finally create the blog and my career kind of took off from there. So I think um, the key to the success was the content. I mean, people really gravitated to the content and the writing style and uh, for the most part seemed to really enjoy it. And I enjoyed the support. Every job I've gotten since 
2008 has been because of that blog. I mean, I don't have time to update as much as I used to, mm-hmm. but people still remember. People still talk to me about it. I, people still call me the snob. I'm still black snob on Twitter. So it was. It, it seemed like <laughs> it, it was the first of its kind too, because there just wasn't a whole lot of black bloggers back then. I mean, there was like yeah. you and MediaTakeout.com and. There, there just wasn't a whole lot. So I think you were in at a really good time getting into a great niche of, of, of readers. Yeah. I think it was like me and Jack and Jill politics and yeah. uh, a few other folks that were writing about politics that happened to be also African-American mm-hmm. and pretty much everyone who started out in that time, that, that 2007, 2008 uh, period has like gone on. If they were, if their blogs were like popular and successful, they like moved on to traditional media jobs. Uh, for the most part, um, like you know, Baratunde, who did Jack and Jill politics, like right. doing excellent. <laughs> yes, yes. Now so he's, he's on uh, Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Yeah, yeah. He's running their um, their social media. So like, you know, it's just it was it was a crazy time, but it was a good time. Like it felt like it was such a small, tightly knit community. Like everybody knew everybody. Everybody was supporting each other's blogs. You had Field Negro. You had just all these you know, great people who were, uh, uh, there was a my average bro who was like my, like my, uh, my brother from another mother on the, in, in the, on the internet, our blogs were like brother, sister blogs, you know? So it was, it was just a lot of great people out there writing, hustling. <laughs> it was a fun time. Like it felt like anything could happen. Anything could happen. You can get a book <laughs> deal based off anything could happen. You know, it's like, now blogging is very different it's a much tougher market to break into yeah. you have to have like a really cool niche otherwise you just get lost right because there's so many out there and it's so competitive yeah. yeah and you and you've managed to turn turn this into a career obviously with churning out six articles a day you've mm-hmm. gotten enough writing skills under your belt to become an associate editor at the root um, big fan of the Root. They've been big supporters of BGN. Tell us about your role there, and what's been the most rewarding thing about working in Black media? Well, I'm associate editor at the Root, and um, I write, but I mostly edit now. I mostly work with freelancers to kind of help them um, uh, cultivate their own writing for stories for the Root. I come up with story ideas, and I still do some writing myself. Like I recently wrote a piece on um, some accusations of whitewashing with this new Keanu Reeves movie that's getting ready to come out this month called Exposed. I did a big piece on that. Um, And I did like a huge series this summer on uh, social justice where I interviewed over 40 people who were, you know, activists from all walks of life. It was everybody from Black Lives Matter folks to folks out of Ferguson to like Al Sharpton. Like it was was everybody. It was was such a, um, uh, it was pretty ambitious. Like I still can't believe that I did it and that it, you know that I managed to get it out, but um, I was really really proud of that. Um, what I love about working for the Root and about being a part of Black media, the media that targets an African American audience, is that I feel so strongly of just about the news and the importance of getting inf- information to people, especially Black people. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way that we're going to really advance is to be well informed. We have to know about the world around what's going on. We have to know how to tackle these problems that we face. We have to know how to unite and how to come together. And the only way you're going to do that is through the dissemination of information. That's why social media is so important. That's why blogging is so important. 
That's why all these different websites and news organizations that cater towards the African-American audience is so important. Because, I mean, the reality is, it's easy to tune out if you want to tune out. If you just want your life just to be like Real Housewives and like the Kardashians, you could totally just do that. You could just watch E! and Bravo all day and never like turn on any other network. You can never read any other website. You can just, just solely consume just like cotton candy garbage. And so what's important to me is to try to try to break through that sometimes by using what you know people are already following. So like you would use the Real Housewives or you would use the Kardashians and you would create like a smart news peg around it to sneak in some vegetables with that cotton candy so people get the information that they need. And um that's all I've ever been really about. That's what the Black Snob was about. It was about finding a way to get people to read about things that are important to them. Because I feel so strongly they need this information. They need to know about the world around them. They need to get mad. They need to act on yeah. things. Uh, they need to get out and vote. They need to organize. They need to strategize. And, you know, and the only way you're going to do that is like it starts with you know the ground zero with just getting the information out. Right. You know. Right. It's just inform the public. And when the public's informed, like beautiful things happen. You know, when people know what's going on and they become aware, you know, the Confederate flag comes down in South Carolina, you know, you see changes and we're pushing, pushing towards community policing and trying to move away from this uh, really terrible policing model that we've got going on right now. You see people like like so many people standing up and speaking out, uh, activists all over the country and like joining under the banner of Black Lives Matter. Um, and it all just starts with information people sharing information and you don't have to be a journalist to do it. Anyone can do it. That's the beauty of the internet. Yes. You know, anyone can get the word out and make people aware. And so I just, I feel really strongly about black people. I really care about our success and advancement. So I'm, I wanted to be part of an African American publication. I wanted to work in black media. Um, I want to work with black people. I love, I love our people. (laughs) I mean, and, and it's, I think it's so great that we are in this digital age now where we can tell our own stories and curate our own content because mainstream yeah. media just doesn't tell our narratives and they completely yeah. erase us and dismiss us. So we we have to tell our stories. And the only way to get that out there is either having your own blog or having your own podcast um, or having your own YouTube channel. And I'm very grateful that we are in an age where we can finally do that. And that's why Black Lives Matter and all of these movements are so important right now. Um, so that that's awesome. I, I really love what The Root is doing in so many ways. And, and also, The Root is very good with highlighting um, bloggers of color and, and independent bloggers and podcasters. I think that that's very important. It's not just about you know what's happening with Jay-Z and, and Beyonce and, and Will Smith and Jada, that you guys are also focusing on young people of color that are actually um, making some really big moves on the independent level. And, and that's very yeah. important. Uh, we're all part of the same media. We're all part of black media, whether you're a, you know, you're a small organization that's starting out, whether you're an individual who's just starting their own plot podcast. Like we support it because we have to support each other. Yes. You know, we support talent. We support smart people you know we want to be part of that and we want them to be part of us so it's just it's it's just logical and and one of the things that you had shared with your anecdote about how you were able to garner two million 
followers, you were able to curate all of these women to follow uh, that followed T.J. Holmes, which I thought yeah. that was very interesting. You you worked for T.J. Holmes. You were the head writer, in fact, of yeah. the T.J. Holmes show on BET called Don't Sleep. What what was that experience like? That that's a very impressive thing to have on your resume, head writer. Hello. Yeah, yeah, no. it was one of the most amazing, crazy, hair pulling, fun, screaming, crying experiences of my life. Like from it's through like the development stages. I I I was one of the I was someone who actually auditioned to you know to be on the show back in like 2011, like in the summer of 2011. They held these auditions, and you know me with my big ego, like I'm thinking like, oh, I could be a host of a show on BT. <laughs> oh snap. You know, so I got my hair done. I put on my best outfit. I worked out my best routines. I met with a friend of mine named Christina Brown, who's a newscaster, and asked her for pointers. And so I get down there, and then I see TJ's there. I'm like, oh, the fix is in. The fix is in. Like, clearly, I'm not auditioning to be host. <laughs> clearly, that's not what happened. It was like me, and it was like Mark Lamont Hill. I'm like, the fix is in. Like, I've been, I've been tricked, you know, but. What it happened was they were looking for people who could be on air talent and they were looking for people who could be writers. And they were looking at me for me as a writer, mm-hmm. potentially could do on air stuff. Like if for some reason the show had actually been super successful and stayed on the air forever. But um, <laughs> that didn't happen. People did. I, did, um, I did, you know, I did well in the audition. Folks liked me. TJ liked me. TJ didn't even realize who I was initially. It was other reporters at CNN who made him aware like do you know what this woman is writing about are you on the internet like are you do you google <laughs> yourself like why don't, and so TJ was a really good sport about it like he thought it was funny oh, yeah that's good uh, yeah because you know I just I'm just having fun it was just for laughs like I just you know I thought he was a cute guy and I some other people thought he was a cute guy I wanted to know stuff about him I would that's be so I, distracted working under him like I just feel like <laughs> What did you say, huh? Like every time he would talk to me, I, I would have to have him repeat it twenty times. Bridget <laughs> is a cool guy. He's like a regular dude. He's such a such a dude. Um, his wife is like amazing. I love his wife. Uh, she's such a cool person, and I got to know both of them really well working on the show. Um, I got to be head writer, kind of like as a fluke. Like I got there. I was just supposed to be a staff writer. Um, and as it turned out, like people really gravitated to everything that I wrote. Like TJ liked what I wrote. The executives at BET liked it. The producers liked it. And so they ended up making me head writer because wow. I was the person who could really, you know, turn around these scripts in a way that was appealing. Cause TJ was a news guy and the producers were comedy people. Like they were the people, it was uh, Madeline Smithberg who created The Daily Show was the executive producer. Oh. Yeah, and so she, um, like, she was brought in because they wanted the show to be funny. But then TJ was like, I don't tell jokes. Like, what do I look like? I'm not, you know, he's not kind of Kevin Hart. Like, he's a news guy. He wanted to be taken seriously. Yeah. And so I was, like, one of the few people who could find a way to thread that needle to mm-hmm. get that line between serious and silly in a way that didn't make TJ want to pull all his hair out. So <laughs> that's not to be head writer. It was so much fun to work on the show. Like, it was just the amount of adrenaline that goes into putting out a daily show, which is that's it started out as a daily show. It was um, four days a week. Uh, it was on late night. It just the crazy, you know, we had the craziest audiences. I used to joke that BET got those people like off of the bus stop. Like I used to joke they would go down to like a bus stop and be like, Hey, who wants to watch come indoors from the cold for free? <laughs> and we'll see a show. Is this, is this the audience or the guests? 
the audience. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> all awesome. You know, they were all cool people. You know, it was, we had, you know, Mark Lamont Hill was on the show and Judith Brown with Advancer Project was on the show and Vivica Fox came on. We had lots of really cool guests. Nice. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was just crazy. Like, Issa Rae had a segment on the show called This Week in Ratchet, which for some reason people thought she was celebrating ratchetness when she was making fun of it. Like, we always, like, we ran into, like, the weirdest problems. <laughs> That's what we did last. Like, yeah, we would bump our heads up against the strangest things. Um, but it was so much fun. I was living in the Bronx in my best friend's horrible apartment. Um, it, you know, taking the subway every day when I hated the subway with a passion. I, me and New York don't get along. Like, I don't know how I survived the, the, the nearly five months that I lived there because I'm just so violently opposed to that city. Like, my everything about it just drives me, just drives me uh, batty. I, I totally my, empathize with that. I have a love-hate relationship with New York. I lived there for three years, so I so get that. Wow, bright, and there's so many people. And I just remember, I, I cried like every night for a month. I would go to bed because I hated the apartment. I, I hated taking the subway, but I loved the job. Like, the job was awesome. Um, I wished, you know, that we had gotten another shot and would have gotten another season and got a chance to work all the kinks out and get everything nice and smooth. But that's, that didn't happen. That's cool. You know, I still have, like, all my great, awesome, awesome memories. I'm still really good friends with, um, you know, Madeline and me and TJ are still cool. He's on ABC now, so life is good. <laughs> and that's and it, it's something impressive to have on the resume, and it sounds like it was a great experience. So that's awesome. How many people can say they were the head writer of a TV show? Hey, yeah, <laughs> head writer for like four and a half months. It was awesome. That is awesome. And I mean, in addition to your writing, head writer of a TV show, blogger. You also do advocacy work in the mental health community. Uh, we've done a couple of shows here on the BGM podcast about mental illness. Do you believe that there are stigmas attached to people of color with mental illness issues? Oh, definitely. I think you still run into this belief uh, within the community where we're supposed to be so tough that you know something like this can't break you, that, can't, that it can't affect you. Um, when I, I first was diagnosed, you know, my the folks in my family like looked at mental illness as if it was like it was a white person's problem. Mm-hmm. You know? like, we had like advanced so far as people that we got white people problems now. You depressed? You know? <laughs> How did that happen? And it's not a white person problem. Like it's a human being problem. Like it affects black people, affects everybody. Uh, mental illness is serious. And uh, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder uh, type two back in um, good lord. It was two thousand and five it was december 2005 when i was properly diagnosed i've been incorrectly diagnosed with depression for years mm. uh, it, it wasn't until like it got so bad that i had to be hospitalized i was hospitalized for um like almost three weeks in a ucla medical center where they finally were able to watch me and were able to finally determine that i had bipolar disorder and that was what my underlying real issue was but um, in the beginning, I was very ashamed because, you know, bipolar disorder sounded scary. I didn't know anybody with it that was, like, successful. Like, everyone that I was surrounded by were other people who were sick, who were very, very sick, people who were just struggling just to live another day, not necessarily even thinking about their careers or, like, having relationships, friends, things like that. They were just consumed with this, like, trying not to just go off the edge. 
And so I had a really bleak outlook initially. Like I thought, I'm never going to get better. Mm. You know, I'm just, this is what my life is going to be like. I moved home with my parents and I was living in my parents' basement. Like had throwing pity parties every night. Cause I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And what happened was, um, one, I started the blog, like the blog on top of just, you know, helping with my career, you know, really saved my life. It gave me something to do creatively, something for me to focus on as opposed to just feel sorry for myself all the time. And then I started doing research and I realized that there were people who had bipolar disorder who were successful. The thing is like a lot of them aren't out. Like they're not going around saying like, Hey, you know, I'm a stockbroker and I have bipolar disorder. I'm a lawyer and I have bipolar disorder because of the stigma. People don't want to be stigmatized and looked at differently because they have this disease. Mm -hmm. And once it clicked for me that I could have my career, I could have friends, I could date, I could fall in love, I could do all these things and have a life with bipolar disorder to learn how to live with it. Just like you would learn to live with anything as if it was diabetes or asthma. It just happens to affect my brain as opposed to my lungs or my blood sugar levels. Um, once that clicked for me, my life really did change for the better. I learned that I had to find a balance in my in work life. Like I'm not someone who can just work themselves to death and completely burn themselves out because it triggers my bipolar disorder. It triggers my depression. It makes my life so much, much harder to deal with. But um, it was finding that balance, like really, really changed my life. And once I found that balance, and found that piece, found the right medication, got the right doctors, went through therapy. Um, I realized that I wanted to be able to talk about my story with people because I felt like a lot of people were in the same position I was in back in 2005, 2006, where I thought, this is a death sentence for me. My life is over. And I was like, no, it's my duty as someone who's been able to have a career and have a life for themselves while living with bipolar disorder to actually talk about it so people know they're not alone. And that there is another side to it. There is a way to live with it and to be functional and to experience everything that everyone else gets to experience. You just have like this just extra thing that just <laughs> is just part of it that you learn how to work with, that you learn how to make peace with. And I just feel like that was really, really important. So I, um, I wrote for Bipolar Magazine for a while. Mm. Uh, I was one of their bloggers and I would blog about my experience with bipolar disorder. Um, I did an article for essence a few years back on bipolar disorder as well. And, uh, and I've talked about it with quite a few people. Um, so yeah, like I just, for me, it's just about just being honest. So, cause I want people to know the nitty gritty about it so they can see that it's not just them and it's not in their head and there's nothing wrong with them. You know, right. that it's just, it's just a disease that you are living with. Right. And, and, in addition to living with your illness and finding ways to channel your creativity um, with respect to blogging, you also created a comic. Yeah. And uh, you are the co-creator of a comic called Passing. Can you tell us what that's all about? Sure. Passing was created as like a joke between me and one of my really, like one of my best friends, Aisha Callahan. Like we came up with this, we were joking around after we were talking about a TV show girls on HBO ah. and we were saying how the only way they would put a TV show on the air that was authentic to the African-American experience would be if it starred two white women. 
And like the joke became like, you know what, what if we actually made that a show? And so me and her worked to develop a show called Passing that was about two white sisters who grow up in PG County raised by a black family. <laughs> and they're trying to, and they decide to double down on blackness. Like they don't want to be accepted by white people. They want to be accepted by black people. They know that they are not black and that they will never be black. Mm-hmm. But they would like to be some down ass white chicks. They would like to really be down. And so um, the, the 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 TV show concept was specifically just about that, about one sister who was kind of like the bougie, like white black sister, mm-hmm. you know, and one was kind of like she was also raised bougie, but she decided to be kind of hood. Like we all got that relative in the suburbs. Right. You are from the suburbs. Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you trying to act hard? Like, you're not hard. <laughs> you're going to get yourself killed. So, and so she's that, the other sister was that. And we, there was all the other characters uh, um, involved in it. Like the other main character is a third main character uh, that I named after my sister is a black girl who is best friends with the bougie white girl. And she is a very specific, uh, unique black girl where um, she is over blackness. She does not understand why her white friends are so obsessed with black people because as a black person, she doesn't see really what the big deal is. Like, we're not a bunch of special unicorns, but you know, it's just people and we have problems. And she's constantly making fun of their their desire to be down. And uh, she only dates like white, Asian and Latino men. Her parents are activists, so she grew up you know, listening to you know, black power and black consciousness and so she's kind of just like rejecting all of it. She's like going through like a phase where <laughs> she doesn't want anything to do with all that. She wants to go hang out at white hipster bars and drink Pat's Blue Ribbon and like listen to, you know, Mumford and Son. And oh my gosh, like all of these characters are people I know in real life. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. So we tried to make it a TV show. We had um, an agency that was interested but when they read the script, uh, the first script, because we wrote two pilots, because when they read the first pilot, the first pilot was called The N-Word. Um, and it was specifically about one of the white sisters, she wants to be a rapper, and she gets in the cypher, and she's so into it that she accidentally lets the N-Word fly. And she realizes she is undone. Like, she's only, like, 21 years old. She's undone her 21 years of trying to be down now. Like, she's completely messed it up. And so the whole episode was about her trying to navigate what she had done and how to fix it. And then it was like a secondary story with her sister where she was complaining about white people appropriating black culture, which is like, you know, would make your head spin. It's a white girl complaining about white people appropriating black culture when the white girl herself would like to be black. Mm -hmm. So it was deep while her black friend basically makes fun of her constantly um, for being a crazy person. So uh, that script was like, they thought it was they told us it was smart but they didn't like it (laughs) so we wrote another one uh, that was a little less uh, controversial you know we we didn't dumb it down but we made it less controversial because the n-word one was pretty provocative and that's when we realized i think they were expecting more like the wayans brothers white chicks and not like what we wrote i don't think they were expecting like it, it to actually be witty and have some depth. Is that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't and know. Deal with social constructs and and. <laughs> I think it was. I think it was just too deep for them. Like at one point, uh, the bougie white girl. Her name is Kelly. Um, her boyfriend, who is black, tell when he he's breaking up with her, tells her that 
I like my black girls black and my white girls white. I don't understand what you are, you know. Where it's just like he couldn't deal with her. He couldn't deal with black girl drama from a white girl. Was um wow. was a big <laughs> one of the scripts. Now was this uh pre or post Rachel Dolezal? This was pre Rachel Dolezal. This okay. Was, like really pre. Like this was before Miley was twerking. Like we were, were way ahead of the game with this script. Like so that's why we were so like amped about it. Like me and Aisha, like we gotta make this happen. We gotta make this happen. And then when, <laughs> when the um when the agency that was interested in it like decided to say no, we were like, oh snap, what are we gonna do? We sent it to BET, but you know, BET's not gonna make a show about two white girls. So that didn't happen. And, you know, we tried uh oh my god, that that HBO competition, the diversity one that everyone applied for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We sent to that. We sent it to Amazon. We I feel like the- maybe now if you did it, it would get picked up. Just because <laughs> of what happened with that and how <laughs> Her story just went viral, and everybody was talking about it. Like, yeah, no, the Rachel Dolezal thing was crazy. Like, we, um, and so the cartoon was out. Like, anyway, this is a long roundabout story to get to the cartoon. So, um, my other best friend in the whole wide world, the one that I lived with in the Bronx, is Jada Prather. This guy is a really good artist, and he drew passing while me oh. and scripts. And so the first, uh, like, I guess the five or six strips, the ones that are up right now are all based on the pilots, the two pilots that we wrote um, and jokes from it. And he he drew it. And uh, the response has been good. I mean, people, uh, once people read it, they get it like instantly. Like if it's something just, when, the, when it's like just out there to just, you know, just see it without any context, it's like, what on earth is this? But then once you like read it, it's like, oh, okay. Like anybody that knows the plot too, it's like, oh, that does actually sound really interesting. Like, see, I don't know, you'll like it. So the response has been good uh, to the comic. It's just the comic is a lot of work, uh, especially for for Jada. Like he is a really meticulous artist. He wants everything just to be perfect and to be beautiful. And so he dedicates a lot of time to trying to get like the nuances right. Yeah. Where you know, me and Aisha, are like, we already got like two giant scripts, and we're like, we want to hurry up, and get more out. So we're always <laughs> This is yin and yang. I mean, it's hard to get to do a web comic, right? But it's been fun. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, there's definitely pros to con- and pros and cons to that when you have that kind of artist that is very meticulous with their work. I mean, because then the quality is really great, but then you've got to yeah. wait on them to make sure that they get their perfections out of the way, and then it takes forever and a day for them to finish. And you're just mm-hmm. like, come on, let's get this going. Exactly. So. But the thing is, like, I don't want the quality to drop off either. Like, one right. time he one on a rush job, and I'm like, what is this? And he's like, well, <laughs> this is what you get when you rush me. So, yeah. Right, right. What, what advice can you give content creators who are interested in blogging, writing for TV, or creating comics um, to ca- have the kind of success that you've managed to master? Be delusional. That's the biggest <laughs> one. Be completely delusional. Because it is like really crazy to think that you have the answers to anything or that you are so much better or more talented than someone else. Like you have to be a little bit delusional in order to make it. Because if you sit there and you think about like all these other amazing writers and content creators and TV producers and TV writers who are all out there and some of them are unemployed, you know, some of, right. some of them, their shows have been canceled and they are out there struggling. Uh, it's like, so, like, what makes you think you're so great that you're going to like succeed where they fail? And so when you think about that, like you will get shook 
you know, you will like, you know, you will not do anything. You'll be afraid to produce because you're like, I'm afraid to fail. So you have to be a little bit delusional. You have to like truly believe you are the one, no matter what evidence to the contrary, like manifests itself. You have to be like, you know what? I'm not listening to that because I know I'm good. I know I'm good. And I have a product. I have the content. I have the idea that's going to make it. Now that, so that's the first thing you have to be is a little delusional. The second thing you have to be is prolific. Like you have to be willing just to create so much stuff because you don't know what's going to work. You know, you don't know what's going to work. You don't know what's going to be the thing to take off. You can't really turn down anything. Like if you get an opportunity to create something, whether it's a blog post, freelance article, internship, you know, whatever, like you've got to take it because that's your shot at getting your work out there and getting people to see it. So you have to be just, on it all the time. Like even before I started the blog, when I was working for the newspaper, I would write all day at the newspaper and come home and write for four or five hours a night. Like mm. I was working on my writing because I want I wanted to be the best. And I felt like I had good ideas. I mean, I wrote uh, when I lived in California. I probably wrote like twenty screenplays. None of them will ever see the light of day because they're all terrible. But <laughs> wow, <laughs> I sounds it. familiar. <laughs> I wrote them, you know, and I felt good about that. And because I wrote those 10, 20 horrible screenplays, you know, I ended up being head writer eventually of a TV show. My writing got better. Yeah. You know, got good. I was willing to send those scripts to studios and have them go, what is this? And send them back, you know, and reject them. And send the the nice ones marked up the script and sent back notes because they were like, you have some talent here, but we can't do anything with this. But I'm going to like be nice to you and tell you why you're wrong. That's the third thing. You can't be afraid to be told why you're wrong. I know I told you to be delusional. So it just seems like kind of counter that you now have to take in like some hardcore real deal facts, cold hard facts that people are going to say about you. But when you meet somebody that's where you want to be and they're doing well and they tell you they, they have advice for you, but you have to be willing and open and take it. You don't have to take all of it because some advice is going to be garbage. But a lot of that advice is actually good advice. And you need that feedback. You need someone to tell you when, like, hey, that's not how you actually write a script. This mm-hmm. is how you write a script. Here's a book you should read. And you need to go, like, thank you. Thank God. Like, thank you for telling me that I don't know what I'm doing and that here's this book that will help me solve it. And then be willing to take that knowledge you've just learned from somebody else and apply it. Uh, so you have to be um, open to criticism. You have to be willing to take feedback, uh, no matter how harsh that feedback may be. And you can't take it personal. Um, always mm. consider the source, because there are going to be some people who are just haters. You can't do anything about that. Right. But <laughs> there are people who do have good criticism, who do have good feedback for you, and you really should consider it. That's the only way you're going to get better. Like, you have to fail to get better. Mm. And Boy, no one knows more about failure than me because I have failed a plenty. But you know what? I've also succeeded a lot, too. And you'll find that with anybody who's had any sort of career that's worth anything. They have their fair share of screw ups and things that didn't work out and projects that never went anywhere. But they never like wavered from a goal, which is the fourth thing. It's just to stick with it. Just no matter what, find a way to stick with it. Even if you have to take another job, even if you have to go fold sweaters at Macy's for a while, always like go back to what your dream is and work on it. I hope you guys are taking notes because this is some, (laughs) (laughs) this is some really valuable information. So, so good. Danielle, you are a delight. You really are. Thank you so much. 
where where can our listeners find out more about you, your website, your social media, and any kind of uh, events that you're attending, uh, speaking engagements, the whole nine? Where can we find out more about Danielle Belton? Well, you can learn tons about me on blacksnob.com or daniellebelton.com. It's the same website. It just happens to have two names. Or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Black Snob on Twitter. I'm also Danielle Belton on Twitter. Although the Black Snob Twitter is the one that I actually use. The Danielle Belton one is just the one that I park on because I used to have problems with trolls. And I didn't want somebody to, like, steal my name and use it for trolling. Um, (laughs) another tip you know like own your own your stuff like make sure you have all your names because trolls trolls man they're crafty um you can also find me on facebook i'm black snob on facebook um and yeah and i'm i'm at the root you know read the roots please please read the root support support your black media Because we support you. (laughs) Indeed, yes. TheRoot.com. Thank you, Danielle, so much for for coming on our show tonight. Oh, it's no problem. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. When I was a young child in the late 1980s, I was given a book by my aunt called The People Could Fly by Virginia Hamilton. In the book is a series of black folk tales that include supernatural elements, fables with a lesson, and slave tales of freedom. I want to narrate one of my favorite stories called The Peculiar Such Thing. It's under the supernatural horror category. The People Could Fly was published back in 1985. The book came with an audio cassette tape in which author Virginia Hamilton herself and actor James Earl Jones retold the stories. After listening to this telling of the story by Virginia Hamilton, much of my own tonality and inflection will mirror hers as it was told in the original audio recording. Just FYI. It's the only way I know that the story is told. So I hope you enjoy this audio recording of The Peculiar Such Thing by Virginia Hamilton. A long time ago, way off in the high piney woods, lived a fellow, all alone. He lived in a one-room log cabin. There was a big old fireplace, and that is where this fellow cooked his supper, to eat it right in front of the fire. One night, after the fellow had cooked and ate his supper, something crept through the cracks of the cabin logs. That something was the most peculiar such thing the fellow ever saw and it had a great, big, long tail. As soon as the fellow saw that something with its great, big, long tail, he reached for his axe. With a swooping strike with it, he cut the something's tail clean off. The peculiar such thing crept away through the cracks between the logs and was gone. This fellow, like he had no sense, he cooked the great, big, long tail. Yes, he did. It tasted sweet and he ate it. Goodness! And then he went to bed, and in a little while, he went off to sleep. The fellow hadn't been asleep very long before he woke right up again. 
he heard something climbing up the side of his cabin. It sounded mighty like a cat. He could hear it scratching and tearing away. And pretty soon he heard it say, Tay-li-po. Tay-li-po. Give me back my Tay-li-po. Now the fellow living there all alone did have some dogs. Big one was best, and the other two slight ones was all right and fair. And when that fellow heard something, he called his dogs, Yeah, dogs, come on! Like that. And his dogs come flying out from under the cabin, and they chase the peculiar such thing down away a far piece. Then this fellow went on back to bed. He went to sleep. It was deep in the middle of the next night when the fellow woke up. He heard something by his front door trying to get in. He listened hard. He could hear it scratching and tearing away. And he heard it say, Tay-li-po. Tay-li-po. Give me back my Tay-li-po. Fellow sat up in his bed. He called his dogs. Yuh! You best? You all right? You fair? Come on in. Like that. And the dogs busted around the corner. And they caught up with the peculiar such thing at the gate. And they about broke their own tails trying to catch it. This time they chased what it was down into the big hollow there. And the fellow, well, he went back to bed and went to sleep. It was way long toward morning. The fellow woke up, and he hears something down in the big swamp. He had to listen. He heard it say, You know you got it. I know you know. Give me back my tailipo. That man sat up in his bed. He called his dogs. You the best? You all right? You fair? Yeah. Come on in here. Well, this time the dogs never come. The thing down there in the hollow must have carried them off in there. He must have eaten the first one, says, That's best. Must have eaten the other two, says, That ain't nothing but all right and fair. And the fellow went back to bed. Don't see how he could sleep again. But he didn't know how bad off his dogs was by then. Well, it was just daybreak. The fellow was awake, scared. He didn't know why. Must have heard something, something right there in the room with him. It sounded like a cat climbing up the covers of the foot of his bed. He listened. He could hear it scratching and tearing away. The fellow looked at the foot of his bed. He seen two little pointy ears coming up over the edge of the bed. In another minute, he seen two big red scary eyeballs looking straight at him. He can't say nothing. He can't scream. He's too scared to death. That peculiar such thing at the foot of the bed kept creeping up, creeping up, 
by and by it was right on top of the fellow, and it said in his face in a real low voice, Tailipo, Tailipo, give me back my Tailipo. That man loses his voice, loses his power of speech, but finally he can say it says, I hasn't got it. I hasn't got your tailipo. And that's something that was right there. That peculiar such thing says right back. Yes, you has. It jumped on that fellow and it was fierce. Its big teeth tore at him, made him ribbons. They say it got its tailipo back. Fellow's cabin fall to ruin. It rot. It crumble and it disappear. Nothing left of it to the big woods but the place where it was. And the folks that live near that place say that deep in the night, when the moon is going down and the wind blows across the place just right, you can hear some peculiar such thing calling, Tailipo, Tailipo, like that. And then the sound of it do just fade away with the moonlight, like it never, even ever, was. The next segment features Marcus Williams being interviewed by Joelle Monique. Marcus Williams has worked with Cartoon Network penciling Powerpuff Girls comic pages. He's worked on animation projects like Axe Cop, worked with DMC by drawing a chapter in his second graphic novel, and his current projects are Supernatural and Tuskegee Airs. So today we have Marcus Williams with us, who, if you haven't heard of yet, don't worry. I'm going to tell you all the great things that he's got in store for us. And one project that I know all of you are going to be super, super excited about. I'm crazy excited about it. Um, I can't wait to get my hands on some more materials. Um, so good morning, Marcus. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. I appreciate you uh, having me on. <laughs> Absolutely. So this project that I'm very excited about is called Tuskegee Airs. Um, if you guys are into Gundam, you'll definitely see some influences in the promotional art that he has up on Facebook, Twitter. Um, you can go to his Patreon and see some of the cool posters he's got up there. Um, Marcus, can you tell us a little bit about Tuskegee Airs? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it is a, is a project that me and a good friend uh, talked about. Greg Burnham uh, is a guy I've been working with uh, since 2001. We've uh, come up with a number of uh, original ideas and things like that over the years. Um, so the concept uh, came out uh, over a conversation. Uh, we were talking to an older gentleman that was uh, in the Air Force, uh, you know, during his uh, during his younger years, and he was saying, "Man, you know, I just really would love to get some kids out and, you know, have them understand, you know, <laughs> more about history and this, that, and the other." And it just, it just, you know, uh, I had been thinking about it for actually a, a little while, saying, you know what, man, it would be really great if, you know, we just took the Tuskegee Airs and just made them a younger, a younger cast, 
And it just kind of, it spilled out from there. And I mean, it just, it just poured out. The conversation just kind of, you know, went. And I, the reason I, I, I've been thinking about it is because, uh, or I should say, I didn't go, I didn't run with the ideas because I was kind of worried that, oh man, you know, I don't know who, you know, if we'll, we'll get sued or something like that. Uh, whether, you know, who owns the Tuskegee Air, you know, like, am, yeah. am I allowed to do that? Um, but it, it pretty much is a, a sci-fi, uh, high adventure action you know, a uh, concept that has a cast of young black pilots, uh, two girls, three boys that actually are, you know, um, on a journey. They're actually forced to be, you know, the last line of defense for Earth uh, in this this wonderful, uh, horrible, you know, situation, <laughs> a wonderfully horrible situation that basically, you know, is threatening life as we know it on Earth. It is a futuristic Earth, maybe about 80 years into the future um, that that we're going to, you know, uh, people, you know, coming into the story, you're going to get um, a futuristic world where um, things are vastly different in this uh, in this reality. But it is still, you know, going to very much be something where the heart of the actual story, we're going to teach history, uh, bring real history into this story, which, of course, takes it from the very notable Gundam and Macross you know, thing, uh, universes where it's just cool robots and, you know, they they had good story, but we're actually taking real history and merging that and packaging that into a format that young people, uh, were creating the concepts for like a Y audience, uh, Y7 audience. Um, that's a TV rating, uh, that, you know, Avatar, the last airbender had, and we want to have that same energy, same fun, but at the same time, there is going to be real history. There's going to be world history, not just American history, um, that these that these uh, young pilots are going to be, you know, um, basically, it's going to be embedded into the story. You just said everything on my checklist. Like, I, <laughs> I love history. Like, even as a, a small kid, I just awesome. gravitated toward anything. Uh, like, I loved the American Girl dolls because you got, like, a little history lesson and a cool right. doll. And you just dress them up and everything. <laughs> That's really cool. And to go Y7 with it uh, is surprising and also awesome. Um, there's not a lot of young kid things out there that are kind of also, like, the that I think older people would want to get involved in, you know, right. Power Rangers and Pokemon kind of are the limit as far as, you know, older guys still kind of get into it. So that's really dope. Um, can we talk a little bit about the weapons? I'm seeing some of the mech and it's just so cool. Uh, what kind of, I mean, is there, is there history within the weapons too, or are those mostly future based? Uh, well, the, I, I guess I, I should start off by, you know, uh, setting the scene. They are going to, um, first, and this is, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to do too many spoilers, um, but the, the, the kids will actually, um, uh, first of all, uh, I should just start that piloting, being a pilot in this future is outlawed. Ooh. Um, it is, you, you know, there is, it is not something freely available. Um, the government that is in control has outlawed all pilots, piloting planes. Humans cannot fly planes. Um, and you know, there's a reason for that. We'll get into the story. I don't want to spoil that, but, uh, I guess, you know, long story short, um, they will be flying, uh, secretly. They'll, you know, the kids will actually be flying the P 51 Mustangs that the Tuskegee airmen actually flew in the beginning of the story. So we're going to start off with, you know, history 
and we'll actually, you know, explain why that plane is, you know, what it is and, you know, why they are flying that. They will have an instructor, a mentor that actually, you know, feed that history to them as young, young kids. Um, but uh, what leads up to them having the weapons, I suppose, and the technology is the event that actually threatens the entire world. Um, and then, you know, they get their new planes, which is, of course, secretly, you know, unbeknownst to them, you know, giant robots that can actually, you know, bipedal robots and things of that nature. You know, that, that whole Japanese animation concept where you're like, oh, my God, these are robots. You know, um, so <laughs> they actually get surprised by that. But having those, those new planes actually unveils their new weapons as well. Uh, the weapons are, in, in fact, um, uh, they're, they're going to be powered uh, by the same thing that power the mechs and their planes, which is um, this, this theoretical uh, <laughs> uh, engine drive thing that I came up with. Um, awesome. And it is, uh, you know, I, I hope, I don't think I'm doing too many. I don't think it's <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but it is very futuristic in the, in the concept that these are really large weapons that these teenagers can actually, you know, um, hold and wield. And it is, um, you know, it is definitely something that is futuristic. It is, uh, it, it, I can just, I can give away and say that the weapons they hold are definitely too heavy for them, but the actual technology in them makes it, you know, weightless to some degree. And ah. so they can. Yeah, they can actually wield, you know, a giant hammer, rocket hammer, I should say. And, you know, with no problem. And it works out really well. So <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking at the posters now, and I have to say my favorite just design character is Genesis. Um, yes. She looks really cool. I'm very, I'm already kind of identifying with her. Um, can you awesome. tell us anything about uh, the character? And we have Omar and Genesis, and then there are three more. Without, obviously, spoilers, but maybe just personality. Sure, sure. Um, Genesis, uh, as she as um, as a character, there well the two girls on the team. Uh, I can go from the oldest to the youngest, uh, or I should, you know, is, um, you have um, you have Ayana, who is the the oldest. Uh, she's the she's the uh, you know the, the the oldest girl on the team. She's the oldest you know teenager, um, and I want to say we range at about seventeen at the at the oldest right now. So Ayana, she's kind of like the team leader. Um, you have Omar, who is, um, uh, you know, maybe a year younger or something like that. He's um, he's the one with the with the the two little scythe like weapons that they're called Kanos. Um, he's this, the next step. He's uh, definitely um, a technology person as well as you know he definitely gets into history as well. Genesis is our tech. Uh, She's the tech on the team. She yes. is, you know, a history history buff. She actually analyzes all the missions, you know, uh, and gives and briefs the rest of the team. Uh, if they are in a new situation, I should say, a new situation, she gives all of the intel on, you know, where they are, the history around that area, what the mission is, and things of that nature. So she's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, she's, uh, she's really, um, but she's very sweet. You know, she's just a, you know, she's a very quiet, um, quiet character at times. But, you know, when it comes down to it, she's just very, very uh, brilliant in terms of her piloting skills and uh, also her IQ. So she's, uh, she's a, yeah, she's a great addition to the team. And then, of course, you have Slip, who <laughs> is the <laughs> he's kind of like the firecracker of the team. 
slip is uh, the, the, the young boy with the hammer, the, jar, the large hammer. He is going to be our uh, team comic relief, yet he is also very brilliant. He's just going to be, uh, he's the kind of kid in class where you, if you, you know, he's, let's say he was drawing in class or something and the teacher would, you know, try to isolate him out because, you know, the teacher would think he wasn't paying attention. You know, you know, oh, Slip, do you understand what I said? <laughs> yes, I understand what you said. Back in 1976, this happened and that happened. And, you know, and he would basically, you know, do that and, he'd, you know, still make a joke about it and things of that nature. But he'd be absolutely right. So he's that kind of character. And then there's Abel, uh, who is going to be the youngest, but he is um, absolutely one of the best pilots on the team um, and so forth. So he's going to be the star pilot eventually uh, of the team and he's going to really bring the team together in terms of their piloting skill so that's awesome um so the characters all kind of drawn and uh we kind of talked about gundam uh anime style what why why go with that kind of style is that just the style that you're most comfortable with is that something that's going to be driving the story well i i would say the the it's a it's an anime style um uh, is is what really inspired uh, inspired me visually for this story because there's just so few there. Well, I can say there's no anime that has an all black cast of you know main characters. Mm. Not that I've seen. If there is, it's hidden. I don't know. Yeah, even it. I Afro know Samurai is kind of diversified. Right. It's not all black. Right, right. and, and I, I shouldn't say it's the whole cast. Like the entire character cast. There's there are more characters that we're going to reveal in the next next few days uh, with the Kickstarter and so forth. Um, but I mean, just the main, you know, the, the, the main characters that are the pilots, they, they're all, you know, it's a young black cast. So there are no animes, no, no Japanese animation uh, project that I've seen, especially not driving futuristic robots. Yes. That are, you know, <laughs> that yes, are all, absolutely that. Yeah. But I mean, there's, there's, you know, more than I can count on two hands and toes that have, you know, whatever color Japanese animation characters are. I, I don't know if they have ethnicities. They have blue hair, red hair, whatever, you know, things <laughs> like that. But um, the anime, I just wanted it to feel like anime um, and use black characters uh, for the main cast. And it's all part of this, this drive that I'm doing as an artist, uh, also with uh, my, my partner, Greg Burnham, um, which is, uh, we, we've been going to, you know, children's books, festivals we've been going I've been going to comic book festivals and it is just it's heartbreaking to actually you know have young parents that are trying to expose their children and then you know to to these these wonderful art mediums comics you know Japanese animation these are all things that when they were young you know they're in their mid-30s now or 40s or something like that and they're just excited about the art and they want to show their young children you know, hey, this is awesome, but at the same time, you know, the kid will be like, well, this, you know, how, where, you know, the, the parents, you know, give the charge and say, well, there's no black characters. Yeah. There's not enough black characters or, you know, there are black characters in comics, but they're not highlighted. There's no, you know, there's not enough books that actually have a cast, you know, and it, it's not that way in television either. It's just, yeah. uh, it's just, and I, and, and we're going to fight against that, that way of thinking to say, that just because it's, you know, five black kids, oh, this must be for black people only. We're going to definitely fight against that that frame of thought because no one says that 
when you're talking about a, a brand new anime that has no black characters. Right. Going, this must be for white people only. You know, it's just, you know, Avatar Last Airbender was amazing. It was an amazing story. No black characters in the main cast. If there was ever a black character, I didn't I can't remember. No, but, we got we got brown people, but not black people. Right. There you go. And it, it's it was just an awesome story. But yeah. if you did the exact same thing as a creator and changed everybody where there was, you know, very few, you know, let's say Caucasian or Asian, there was no other, you know, there was majority, you know, brown people or black people, you know, then the, the as we are as a society, we'd say, oh, that must be for black people, you know, and that's that's the thing that we're going to change. Uh, there will be other ethnicities throughout the story in the very you know, cast itself, uh, supporting cast characters and things like that. There will be main characters throughout. There will be other ethnicities in the actual Tuskegee Airs project because we don't want to exclude, you know, or we're not trying to exclude and say, oh, no, no, only black characters. Uh, that's not our mission. But, but we want them at the forefront, and I respect that. That's awesome. Sure. That's awesome. Yeah, but we... I was going to say definitely anime because, you know, I want to, I definitely want to show people that it's possible. Um, because, you know, not to say that I'm the only artist that's, that's trying this or trying to put, you know, black characters in anime, but in this specific, you know, uh, niche of saying, you know, piloting, you know, they're, they're talented pilots, they're, they, you know, pilot big robots and, you know, it's this fun, lighthearted yet, you know, very awesome high adventure story, similar to, you know, Avatar Last Airbender. That's amazing. I'm really looking forward to it. Are you guys just aiming for a TV show at this point, or might we also expect some comic book form of the show? No, we're gonna uh, we're definitely like TV show. I, I want that in the worst way. I'm just gonna I'll be honest. Um, like a, a an animated show would be everything I wanted for Christmas since <laughs> I was, so uh, definitely that is that's the end game. Uh, that's oops. Hopefully you didn't hear that. Um, I had a big notification just now on my phone. Um, oh, no, you're good. No, no. Okay, no, it was uh, the comic. We're going to do a comic, a graphic novel for the Kickstarter. That is going to be the actual um, foundation of the Kickstarter is for the graphic novel, uh, which will have three three issues in it. So uh, once we launch the Kickstarter, which is literally in the next day or two, um, we are going to um, put that graphic novel at the forefront Um and we're going to have some interesting stretch goals, which, of course, one of the main ones is a animated pilot. So if uh, if we want, you know, if people want that, and I believe if we show it what what it could look like, that may really set the stage or you know put the charge to any fan that's like, oh, I didn't know it could look cool like that, you know, animated. Okay, yeah, let's go for that. Um, hopefully, if people want it, then we can help. You know, hopefully, get that goal as well. Uh, just to get started, and it's just you know something that's very short, an animated pilot. Um, we're definitely trying to be realistic. Uh, animation is is very expensive, yes. so um, it's one of those things where you know, like I said, we're going to start with the graphic novel first, and if people want the animated pilot, then we'll go. You know, we are. I'm talking to an animation company today. Actually, um, I'm scheduled to talk Ooh. to them in less than an hour. Uh, and I've I've been you know back and forth with them. We're we're breaking down the prices, and it can it can get really expensive. Um, but luckily, I've I've worked in animation um, before 
I've done character design, I've done character art, I've done storyboards, things like that. So I understand how to navigate, you know, um, in terms of, you know, <laughs> getting the right price. You know, uh, it, uh, for in, I can give you, I can give you a little, a little thing, uh, like a minute, one minute in animation is, is like, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 grand. Ooh, Lord. Yeah. So, you know, but there's, you know, that's a scary figure if you don't know what you want. So I could, you know, I, I can break that down and say, okay, no, I don't want all that. Let's just go for, uh, <laughs> let's go for a couple of seconds. Uh, we just want to prove that this animation can be done um, to the Kickstarter community uh, and things of that nature. So it's, it's yeah, very, very um, realistic if people want it. Because $20,000 is not a lot of money um, when you're talking animation. Right, uh, like right. the quality, the quality of animation we're looking for, which is, you know, Japanese animation. Um, it's it's we want that quality, that level of quality, similar to what uh, Boondocks did, what Black Dynamite did. They sent their, their animation uh, overseas to overseas animation companies and things of that nature, Asian companies. So we want uh, we, we want similar quality in that and having, you know, that high action and things of that nature. So if people are looking to support your Kickstarter, which launches in just a day or two, what can they expect? Uh, Kickstarter is uh, prize-based. So I wonder what kind of things can they expect if they donate $5, if they donate $50? Oh, I, oh the, 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 talking about the pledge packages? Yes. Well, we have, uh, <laughs> we have, uh, we have um, scrutinized all the wonderful things. And I, I don't, um, I'm sure you, you probably know by now. I, did, um, I succeeded recently, uh, I think in October, with um, Supernatural. Is yes. a, a superhero character, and um, we we you know I stemmed a lot of the the prize packages from that Kickstarter because it's you know it's very similar. We're doing a graphic novel, like I said, so a lot of the prize packages are very similar in that in that right. Um, they're just different, many different ways to get the uh, get the comic once it's done. But on top of that, we are working with um, some three D artists that are going to have some figurines of the kids. We're gonna have 3D, you know, um, you know, 3D printed figurines for your desk. That's coming. Uh, we have some great, uh, great poster art that I have not released yet, you know, just, just to keep, you know, uh, keep, keep Pandora's box from opening completely. If you guys are um, curious <laughs> about the posters, the ones that have yeah. been released, they are online now, you can check them out and they are stunning. They are so much fun. I get you really jazzed about the characters and what's to come. So definitely go to yes. his websites and check out what he does have posted and maybe get yourself something that hasn't posted. Get yourself a surprise. Yes, indeed. There's more. <laughs> lots more in there. There's lots more. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, and it, it's it's just, yeah, there's there's a, a nice um, slew of, of, of nice things, T-shirts, posters. Um, we're going to have a character book, character guide book that goes into the actual setting of the story uh, shows the you know shows where they're based. It uh, shows a, more of the future um, future you know uh, landscape and the technology behind the enemy they're fighting. Um, you know the government and it explains all this stuff. It's just really cool. It's a lot of things that that we have in store for the uh, for the Kickstarter prize packages, um, and you know just a lot of different cool things. And and like we said, it's there's all this other stuff that I didn't put in Supernatural that I'm like, oh, man, that would have been great, um, such as, you know, $5 packages. Um, so people that aren't, you know, financially, you know, swimming, swimming in money. Yeah, like many of us are just, you know, 
making it yeah. work. <laughs> there you, go. you know, and, and it's 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 valuable. It's, you know, things that can still hold value for five dollars that I'm, you know, where people can still be. If you're a fan of it, you can still grab it for five bucks and you know enjoy that. You know, for as long as you want, and it's it's valuable things. You know, there's digital things. Um, that I didn't put in uh, the, the supernatural that, you know, I'm kicking myself now. I'm like, oh, man, that would have been great. So, yeah, just, you know, continuing doing research on other Kickstarter projects where I'm like, that's really cool. I wish I could have thought of that. But, you know, that was my first Kickstarter that actually succeeded. So I'm, I'm you know, live and learn. Live and learn. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And since you mentioned Supernatural, I want to quick pitch that out to people. Uh, Supernatural is very awesome. Uh, if you look at some of the character designs, they're also on his Twitter and Patreon. Um, basically, uh, characters that are, again, all black and all natural. So you've got a lot of giant epic froze that are amazing and envious to those of us trying to grow our own right now. Um, (laughs) and just these beautiful characters. If we missed out on the Kickstarter, when can we expect, uh, some supernatural stuff that we can get our hands on? Um, you can expect it towards the end of January. I am, I am crossing my fingers that everything will get sent by the end of January. Uh, there are, um, you can still, you know, go to my website, marcusthevisual.com, and you can actually still lock in um, your, your copy of Supernatural in advance. If, you know, if you're, if you missed the Kickstarter, I still have the pledge packages available on my website. Uh, like if you go there now and you, you grab one of the pledge packages, I can save it. Like it emails me and lets me know that that's that you know who you are, your your email, you know, all your information, and then I can just kind of you know I reserve that, uh, and I can just pull up that list of people that you know are doing it that way. Once the books come, I just mail it out to them. So um, definitely, there's there's still a way to get your copy. But yeah, towards the end of January, as I'm keeping my fingers crossed, um, if all the, if you know if, if if all the planets align, everything will you know, come. <laughs> on time and I can just mail everything out um, from there. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Definitely check it out because it just looks so badass. It's things that we've been asking <laughs> for for a long time, especially from the big two if you're into superheroes and you've been like, sure. where are cool black superheroes that are actually, you know, dress and yes. speak and, and look black <laughs> instead of, you there know, you putting them yeah. in old white rolls. Um, <laughs> so you definitely want to check it out. I also want to talk about your other project really quick here, uh, Young Heroes, which is yes. so cool. Um, for those of you that know, Anna, it's a little more of the chibi style, kind of big head, giant eyes, but it's all heroes that you've seen before. Uh, it's got Power Steel and Spawn and Falcon and make them black and kind of update their style a little. Um, and I think I read somewhere that you kind of started that for your kid. Uh, well, it, it started because I, I had a conversation. Um, like I said, I put it on the website to say that I, I had a conversation, especially at the kind of conventions. Um, like I was saying earlier, these I'm meeting these these young black parents or you know black parents that are you know frustrated that there's not enough black content in comics. And I'm just you know my my rebuttal to them is, oh, what are you talking about? There's a lot of great black characters in comics, um, but the reality is. You know they're in there. They're just not at the forefront. Mm. You know they're they're they they all don't have their own comics yet. You know you can you know break apart a number of teams that have all had their own comic. Um, maybe they've had a comic spotlight once or twice. Uh, Storm has you know has a comic right now. Um, Bishop I believe has had a comic at some point. Black Panther things like that. 
but they don't last very long. Mm. Buy Cyborg's know, comic if you're not doing it right now. It's out. It's on shelves. We are amazingly <laughs> just past issue six, and it's so much fun. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's the stuff where it, now it's, you know, a lot of that's changing. But, you know, traditionally, it's just, there, there are a lot, I mean, a ton of great black superheroes and, you know, Marvel and DC, mm-hmm. uh, where you just don't see them in the forefront. Or they died off or... You know, they got depowered or their powers are not really that great. Um, so uh, my rebuttal as an artist to that that problem is take and I and, I, and just to clarify, I had a, a long it was a I didn't have a long conversation. There was a long conversation about me doing the young heroes where someone thought I was blackwashing these characters. Mm-hmm. And it was it was, you know, a total misunderstanding because I haven't changed any ethnicity of any character. Um, except for maybe one where I created a new Green Lantern, which is a Chinese girl. Um, but other than that, every single young hero that I have actually depicted is a real, actual, you know, comic character. Um, I have not changed the ethnicity, you know, or their, their, their color from, you know, like, oh, you know, I want a black Superman kid. No, there, there was actually a black Superman and, you know, a black, black Superwoman. Um, they were in uh, Crisis on Infinite Earth. Uh, in that big that big storyline, yeah, yeah. uh, they they were married. You know, I just make them young because I want young people to be able to uh, see themselves in these images. I want them to see, oh wow, this is a young version of of Superman, a young version of Wonder Woman. And I can then say, oh no, well this isn't Wonder Woman. You know, this is a character called Nubia, and you know she was created in 1978. And then, you know, the parent is also like, they're like, the parent is just as wide eyes, you know, wide eyed a lot of times because they've never heard of this character or they've never seen like Nubia still doesn't have a comic, but she's like just as awesome and powerful as Wonder Woman. They fought, you know, back in the day and neither one of them could beat one another. Um, Nubia has her own set of powers. She's an Amazonian, you know, and things like that. She's just, um, but yeah, never had a comic. But she's just as awesome. That's she's a black so lady. cool. I didn't so, know about yeah. Nubia, so I'm definitely going to go look her up <laughs> after we get done with this because what? That's amazing. Exactly. So that, that's where, that's my charge for young heroes, which is young people will never see it. Especially, and you know, it, they're all grown-up characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the ones that I'm featuring. Um, Blade, you know, Spawn, um, you know, Falcon. Um, I'm doing one right now. Like I'm looking at it right now. I'm doing Luke Cage. Yes. And oh, it's it's just the way I'm showing them is uh, so I'm I'm actually doing the, the older characters. I'm trying to make them teenagers. Um, but yeah, just just they're not going to be shown in that way. So young people, it's kind of let's say you're 10 years old and you're trying to read a Black Panther comic. You know, jumping right into Black Panther at this point as a as a 10 year old may be a little tough. Yeah. You know, it, it just, I'm not saying that you couldn't read it. It's just the concept of that story may be a little heavy. There's so much backstory, too, and where do you jump in, and his history changes, and he's all over the place, and are you starting yeah. with when he's with Storm, or before that, or after? So right. I, these kinds of things are great just as introductory levels of this is what the character is about, this is their personality, and from there, it's it's much easier to then go into the back history. And then I'm, you know, making them young, you know, sudden I had a young girl and it was, it was, so I took a picture and everything. It was beautiful. Young girl, um, you know, and her father come up to my table. We were doing a book, a, a book event 
And she literally just, you know, points out the, 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 the young Nubia poster. And she just, you know, grabs it off the table. And she's like, this one, this is the one I want. And the dad was like, how do you, what, we just got here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, she just like, she cradles this poster and she starts talking like to the poster. And, you know, in her own world, she's just like, I mean, just like happy beyond belief. And she's just like dancing around with this poster. And then her dad explained, oh, well, she dressed up like Wonder Woman for Halloween. And, oh. you know, but she had no idea about the history of the character. None, you know, she didn't know that it was Nubia. She just thought it was Wonder Woman. But it was young. It looked like her, is what her dad explained. She said that this is what her costume looked like. And so she saw herself in a poster, you know, and, and a character that she knew nothing about, you know, didn't know he existed, but now she did. So, she, you know, he later sent me a picture with, you know, the frame picture on her wall. Uh, it was amazing. It's the kind of stuff. And I'm like, this, that's exactly why I'm doing it. That's so it's, it's amazing. That, that, it's that kind of charge to say, I'm, it's very clear for me now. <clears throat> I don't want to be pegged as anybody that, oh, he's just doing black characters. No, no, no. It's not. It's, it's, that's the surface level stuff where if you just see what I'm drawing, it just looks like that. Uh, someone said, oh, Tuskegee Airs just looks like a black Robotech. I'm like, well, if you're just looking on the surface, I suppose you can say that. But no, not at all. We're actually, you know, embedding real history and we're packaging it in a very clean, modern, <clears throat> exciting way for young viewers to say, you know, to put in front of them. And suddenly they're being entertained and they're learning history that they would otherwise say, oh, this is boring. You know, it's why is it all gray? You know, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, and so, yeah. poo on the person who, I mean, just in looking at the costuming, I could tell that this was going to be something different. Like, you can see the recall to history, and it's clear also the updates to it, though. I I was thrilled the minute I heard about this. I was like, I have to talk to Marcus. Like, this project <laughs> looks so exciting, and I've been eagerly anticipating the Kickstarter. I'm definitely going to be jumping on that. The whole Thank thing, you. I mean, it, seriously, if you haven't seen it floating around the internet, you definitely want to go look up Tuskegee Ears and see what that's about. The early sketches are online and you can see a lot of the mech and it just looks so dope. It's so clean and it looks fun. Like that's the other thing. It's a lot of times, especially when we're talking about black history within America, it's just kind of sad and that's, depressing that's, and this looks fun. I'm very, very excited about it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marcus. Seriously, check out the Kickstarter. It launches in a day or two. Um, actually, if this is already out, it may have already launched. Um, <laughs> so today is the 28th. If it is the 1st of January 2016, go look for the Kickstarter. Give it your money. Support it. Um, these are the kinds of things we've been asking for. And they're here. They're available to us. So thank you, Marcus. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate it. Thank Absolutely. You. <laughs> Bye. All right. Take care.